You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. Hello and welcome to Writing Black. I am your host, Maisha Kai, lifestyle editor here at the Griot. And I am so excited to welcome you all back to our podcast about Black writers and Black thoughts because we have an incredible Black writer with us today, one who I think uh, has been the prototype for myself and so many other cultural journalists. Um, she is a novelist, a journalist. You may remember her as the editor-in-chief of Vibe. Uh, she was at Billboard. She was at The Root. She's been everywhere. <laughs> and she also has this incredible memoir that came out last year called Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. It was very personal to me. And welcome to Writing Black, Danielle Smith. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for that lovely introduction. You are very welcome. I mean, I, I really can't say enough about, I think, the influence that you've had on um, a, a, an entire generation of writers, <laughs> including myself and and hopefully more than my generation, uh, which is also your generation, I should say. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and also, you know, you're still giving it to everyone via the Black Girl Songbook podcast as well. I got to shout yes. that out as well. Yes. But we are here today to talk a lot about this book, which I know came out last year. It just was re-released in paperback, which is always a big feat for writers. Yes. We love that. We love to see it on paperback. So, paperback. so I expect everybody to be tucking this into their bags this spring, take it to the beach this summer. Um, but I want to hear from you, because um, it's always better when the writer describes it. How would you describe Shine Bright to those who haven't engaged with this yet? How would I describe Shine Bright? Well, it is what it says it is. It is a very personal history of Black women in pop. It's a merge of memoir, which Uh is my story, and biography, which is the stories of Black women in music that have meant a lot to me, meant a lot to my mother and her sister, meant a lot to my grandmother and her sisters, Uh, women as far back as Ella Fitzgerald and before, all the way up to Beyonce, and Mariah Carey and Janet Jackson, and how I've interacted with them over the course of my career and how they've interacted with the world over the course of their careers. And so it is very personal. And, um, you know, it's a, it was an emotional book to write. Yeah. It's always an emotional book to speak about. But it is, a, I always tell people, it was a labor of love, but it was still labor. Yeah, and you can feel it. Um, you know, there's this is... This this is a remarkable book for a lot of reasons, um, in my estimation. You know, and I read a lot of books. So, uh, you know, I I think, first of all, this is a, a new example, I think, of, you know, of several that have come out recently, but a really unique example of what a memoir can be um, in terms of this weaving of personal history with pop culture, like literally, you know. Um, and it's not linear, but it's incredibly Uh-oh. poignant. It's incredibly uh, relatable. I mean, I definitely felt that as much as you were telling your story, I felt you were telling my story. You were telling the story of a lot of black women. I was one of the free-ish breakfast kids, a gnar of cantaloupe down to the rind. Our morning care teachers taught us to sing the stylistics, Betcha by Golly Wow, Sammy Davis Jr.'s The Candyman, and B.J. Thomas's raindrops keep falling on my head. In memory, these teachers are soft. They smell like themselves. I can't recall their race at all. 
you know, in approaching a project like this, um, right. I mean, it almost feels like a little silly to ask, but I have to because it, it feels a little chicken or egg in a, weir- in a weird way. How did this begin? Was it always intended to be both memoir and biography or did that kind of evolve as you were approaching this process? I know this was a labor, as you said. Did not start that way in any hey. way, shape okay. or form. I was very committed to writing a history of black women in pop. Um, I had been maybe since right after I left Billboard. The book was actually uh, purchased by a, another publisher. Okay. And I could not get the book done with that publisher or that editor. That's or real. that agent. So it was a struggle yeah. those first few years. I couldn't pull it together. Because I think I didn't know really what I wanted to say. I think my point of view was not intact. Um I was doing my best to be super objective and to include everybody. If I wanted to include everybody, I would still be working on it as we speak. It would not be done. So one of the great things about, um, I did a fellowship at Stanford, the John S. Knight uh, Journalism Fellowship at Stanford. Um, You mentioned hardcover right before we jumped on the air, um, which was a hardcover magazine I put together uh, when I was a part of this fellowship, but the other great thing that came out of my time as a JSK fellow was time to just think about what I was trying to do with this book. I always advise people in our business, um, do the fellowships, uh, apply, apply, apply. Um, They give you time to think about your next move, your next plans. Um, I remember when I told my godfather, who I'm very close to, Bobby Carter, I called and told him, I got, I got the fellowship at Stanford. I got it. I got it. And he said, good. is That's how uh, white people in your field have been remaining sane by doing these types of things. And so I had time at Stanford to really think. Mm. And what I thought about was I wanted to have a new agent, a new editor, and I wanted to be back with Chris Jackson, who... The great, you know, the legendary Chris Jackson at uh, One World uh, lit. And Chris published my first two novels. Well, he and I were both both kind of puppies in the game. New agent, new editor, new conversations about the possibilities. And then all of a sudden we're talking about a hybrid memoir mm-hmm. that merges biography, cultural history, and and autobiography when I didn't think I could do it and then I said yes I can though and you did and you did yeah I mean I think I think to me what what is so brilliant about this book um is you are I mean it's just the the parallel the parallels that are there between um even what you were just saying right now in terms of thinking about who deserves to have their story told right Whose uh, whose journey is worth documenting? Whose uh, trajectory is aspirational, right? And so, like, obviously, for those of us looking from a distance at your trajectory and you know the places that you've been, the things that you see, the people you've talked to, the influence that you've had, um, you know, nobody understands all the little you know mechanics it takes <laughs> to get there. And I think you know, and and all the and all the like 
minutiae and the tiny moves that can advance or set you back years, you know, when you're on these creative paths. And as a black woman who I, I was a black woman in pop, so, you know, I, yes. I understood what you were saying here very intimately. And I was so um, grateful that you actually were very strategic in, in who you chose to highlight and and, and how. Um, it, it didn't feel exclusionary to me. It felt very pointed as you illustrated your own path. Um, I also love that you talked there about the process. Very few people talk about that, the process of actually getting a book done and all the people that it takes to make that happen and and get that out there. Um, and I'm sure they think you could just pick up the phone and call whoever you want, make it happen, and maybe to some extent you can. But I think um, there's something very uh, telling about that as well. When we think about Black women in pop music, when we think about mobility, um, and I mean women on both sides, you know, both in front of the camera and on the mic and behind it, um, that whole gatekeeping, being managed thing, what were you trying to say, I guess, about that in this book? One of the things that I really wanted to do was make it a book about the details, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, so often Black women, Black people, but particularly Black women, our stories are told in terms of being first. Yeah. She was the first Black woman this. She was the first Black woman that. And these are wonderful accomplishments, obviously necessary. It needs to be documented. But they can be flattening stories told through that kind of prism. Uh-huh. Um, everything is just about, you know, the rise and the fame. And no, what did you wear <laughs> is my question. How did you wake up that morning that you did the thing? Um, were we wearing our hair braided? Were we wearing... Um, a sew-in, like, uh, what were we doing? Did we feel confident? Had we just gotten married? Had we just broken up with a partner? Um, Mm -hmm. Had we just had a baby? Had we just lost a baby? I wanted to talk about, also was very important to me to talk about the mothers of stars of these women. Mm -hmm. Um, So often the fathers are talked about, and I do talk about some of the fathers, but I wanted very specifically to talk about the mothers and not just because, oh, this is a book about women, but also because so often we define people by the the day, the month, the area in which they are born. Mm-hmm. And I think we always just take for granted like somebody was born on this day and died on that day. But see, if you were born, a woman is a part of that story, that mother's life. Born is a, like a woman's verb. And I'm like, what were the moms doing? How were the moms influencing the women to become um, who they were going to be um, or not influencing? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about their lives. Let's talk about Marilyn McCoo. I always tell this story because it's crazy to me that I could not figure out why Marilyn McCoo, whose family is from Georgia, was not born there. She was born in New Jersey. And it's like she was born in Jersey, but she was a toddler in 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 Georgia. Something wasn't adding up for me and I finally found out that her mother who was a gynecologist back in those days um, in the 40s did not trust the hospitals uh, in Georgia uh, so she would get on the train and go all the way to Jersey to have her, her all of her children not just Marilyn McCoo delivered by a black woman OBGYNs stay wow. there 
until the baby was, you know, grown enough to handle the train trip back to Georgia. But that's what she did. Uh-huh. So then that just put Marilyn, that places Marilyn McCool's birth and life into a whole perspective. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I wanted to make sure uh, that I talked about the details of the women's lives, details, hair, makeup. These things make up a woman performer's life. But I also wanted to push back a little bit, honestly, on the idea of black girl magic. Uh-huh. I think that, um, yes, we are magical beings. Um, I don't know how we would have survived without having uh, some of that magic in us. Um, the ability to to cast spells and even to curse people, um, the ability to float through things that would that would kill others. Right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But pushing back on that a little bit, I wanted to get into the idea of black woman creativity and black woman work. Yeah, I was about to say, as you said earlier, it was a labor. We're going to return to that because I do want to talk more about this whole black black girl magic thing. Uh, in just a moment when we return with Danielle Smith and more Writing Black. All right, we are back with Danielle Smith and uh, this week's episode of Writing Black where you're talking about Shine Bright, which is Danielle's deeply personal and very comprehensive ode to black women in pop. We were just talking about the whole concept of black girl magic, which, you know, uh, may not as be, as be as buzzy as it was a few years ago, but it's still, I think, you know, this trope that, to your point, has both been incredibly inspiring, but also it can be a little damaging. <laughs> you know, as you said, flattening, I think, is a, is a great word. Flattening is a great word for that. Love- um, tell me more about, about your take on that. We couldn't get through it if we were somewhat magical. We could not. Because the odds are stacked. Uh-huh. against us just uh-huh. like stacked like uh-huh. stacked on stacked on stacked against us but I wanted in Shine Bright for attention to be paid to the actual work of creativity uh-huh. because we're doing it so I want to talk about ideation I want to talk about execution I want to talk about managing people in your creative circle, people on your creative teams. Uh I want to talk about, as I've mentioned, the minutia and the detail of, because it matters in this world so much, how what a woman looks like and how she presents. For black women in particular, it's just deep and fraught. Uh Let's discuss that also. Uh Like it's work. It's work that men do not have to do, even black men. It's true. You have this incredible uh, passage in the book. This is you telling your own story and talking about a woman who seems to be uh, to have been a bit of a mentor for you um, at Vibe and, and how she sat you down one day and like ran through this like laundry list of like pitfalls for women in the industry. Oh, and yeah. you run through a few of them as well in terms of, um, I mean, you know, Another beautiful passage you write, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but you know, you talk about um, being everything from this, you know, this this focal point of like lust and adulation, but also this like, you know, low value target, you know, and and as a woman who survived years in the industry, it's like, and and as a woman who got out for a reason, I'm like, mm, ugh, yes, like I felt that in my soul. Um, 
you know, how much is riding on us? And there's also this thing, you know, we were, I referred to that woman as something of, of a mentor because I thought that was a very mentoring thing to do. But we also know that black women don't get a ton of mentorship in general. We are typically learning on our feet. You know, I'm like you. I did not get to journalism through a conventional route that a uh-huh. lot of my colleagues have. I didn't have a lot. You know, I had to kind of get in and learn on my feet and do that whole thing. Um, but we don't typically have typically have the guidance. Um, yeah. Is that something that you were trying to maybe also? I mean, I don't know if it was intentional. And I felt there was a lot of guidance in this book. Was that was that intentional? I guess is the I, question. I chose to. Yes, I wanted to mention everybody that helped me, and I'm mad at I'm mad for whomever I I forgot or left out because um, it just wouldn't have happened otherwise. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I was grasping for it. I didn't even have, as I outlined in the book, I didn't even have my bachelor's degree until I was in my mid-30s. Um, and then, you know, typical Cancerian, uh, you had to overcompensate and get both at the same time. <laughs> um, but I didn't. So I didn't have those those sort of college or J school uh, mm-hmm. connections or networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also very much, I also just didn't quite know how to act in corporate spaces. I didn't have training. My family is not like a corporate family. I mentioned my godfather. He was that first generation. My aunt Victoria was that first generation. But my Uh mom didn't go to four-year college. Um, My sister also didn't have her degree. My younger sister uh, throughout um, Shine Bright, my sister Raquel, Dion Smith, Newlywed, last name Bean. She's so excited. My newlywed sister at our big age, um, second husband. Um, but, you know, we didn't come from that. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to act. A lot of times I failed miserably because I didn't understand the codes. I didn't understand the lingo. Um, and so Terry Rossi is who you're mentioning. Yes. Who was the charts editor at Billboard when I got there which is okay. my first sort of corporate job. Okay. Man, if I didn't have Terry Rossi and people like her, if I didn't have Sylvia Rohn in my life now and for the last 20 years, um, and Sylvia and I have been friends for so long, I mean, the mentor-mentee thing has faded as, yeah. as if you're lucky will happen and you just begin to be girlfriends and sisters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm blessed to have her, but I also had a lot of white males in my life early in my career. Um, and I'm not going to lie, forged those relationships because I needed something. Yeah. And there weren't even that many women in journalism. Like if I'm at the San Francisco Weekly in the 90s, I was literally like the only black woman on staff. Wow. wow. I'm trying to think if there was a black male in editorial. I don't think so. So it's like, how are you? What's going on with you? Where y'all going? Y'all going out for a beer? I don't even drink beer. Don't, didn't, didn't go now. You guys are going out for a beer? Oh, here, here I go. And so, you know, I had to, I had to get in where I fit in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are going to uh, talk a little bit more about fitting in in this crazy industry we call music and and journalism (laughs) when we come back with more writing black and more danielle smith 
We're back with more writing black. Danielle, you were just talking about, and I think we could, I could totally relate to this, this like the cronyism that you kind of have to like build up to have a successful career. People act like it's a bad thing. It is a necessity. It is what you have to do. Um, you know, people work with people that they like, and we know that. And when you're talking about being a black woman, um, I think in any industry, that whole likability factor feels so fragile and it feels so tenuous at all times. Um, you know, you talk a lot about, and I love this because, you know, what's so great about Shine Bright, too, is that we're really seeing, um, you're really giving this intimate look at how the sausage is made in terms of like how you're getting these interviews, how you're having these conversations, how you're building these relationships and doing so not even as somebody who's naturally like a networker. Hi, I'm the same. <laughs> like right. also and as well. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, just this, the maneuvers that everyone is having to do to like get in the door, the facades that, that people, you know, have to build um, whether it's, you know, Whitney Houston talking about how they had a they had a man for her picked out, you know, that I mean, it obviously wasn't Bobby, but they, you know, they had an idea of who this was or yes. it's Mariah who has very fully. And I, I think with both hands grasped her whole diva persona. I mean, to the point where yeah. she uses the word all the time, um, yes. you know, but I'm quiet, honestly, one of the not, yeah, but I'm one of the. One of the hardest working women in the business, quiet is kept, you know, very intense about her craft and very, you know, I mean, prolific songwriter, like ridiculously prolific. Um, how do you feel, you know, if we if we look at Shine Bright as a, you know, it's both a God, it's it's both a celebration and a cautionary tale in many ways. Um, what do you hope? that, I mean, when you look at the pop stars of the day or the black women who were trying to navigate in these spaces, whether you're talking about like a Doja Cat or a Lizzo or whatever, um, what do you feel they get from a book like this? Wow. I ask because well, this is a book I, I could have used. Get, no, I hope they get some, I hope they get some sustenance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also hope uh, in the best case that they would see that they're part of a long and glorious tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is important to feel a part of, like, to feel like a legacy, to feel like um, at least someone else was here before me uh-huh. with the machete cutting down the sugar cane and trying to to, to make a path. You know, um, I interviewed SZA recently for the New York Times Magazine, and first of all, that was an it's it's amazing. I've been blessed to speak to so many women, black women, at the zenith of their careers. Uh-huh. Um and I'm speaking to SZA, whose name is Solana, and I say this, or I say that. And some of her answers were so similar to answers that I received from women born 20, 30 years before her that they were the same. Uh. And I said to her, I said, you know, I would get frustrated. When I look at the transcript, it's crazy, too. I feel like, why am I talking to Solana so wild? But I am like, I remember being, it was so great. We were at her home in Malibu, you know, a, a place that she worked so hard to get. Mm-hmm. She was very specific, intentional about wanting to be by the water. And she got that. She made that happen for herself. 
but she's saying things, whether it's about work or men or the industry or her hopes for herself or her hopes for her work. And she's saying things that I'm like, I thought we did this so y'all didn't have to do this. Like, I literally said this to her. I said, I've interviewed Whitney Houston. I've interviewed Beyonce. I thought folks did this so you didn't have to do this and have these answers that are like, well, you know, it is what it is because of the way the industry is. I'm paraphrasing. Um, Yeah. And it's so, I want to say it's frustrating, but it's more than that. It's heartbreaking. So I hope that someone like a Lizzo, like a Sizzle, like an LMA who I love, a Janaeco, like so many amazing women uh, creating music um, right now and just on their first and second big projects. I hope it would give them some sustenance to say, I'm a part of a sorority okay. of women who make things and get things done. <laughs> I like that. I like that get things done part. Uh, we're going to be right back in a second with more Danielle Smith. All right, Danielle, uh, we are back. And, I, you know, I want to get into this generational thing that you and I share. I I'm, I was born in 75. I am a very proud Gen Xer, um, not the least of which, for I think lots of reasons. I really think we're the cornerstone of cultures. We know it. So it's always hilarious to me that Gen X gets forgotten so often because I'm like, so much of the stuff you love was us. But, um, you know, particularly when it comes to music, I always think we were actually you know, not to start a generational war, y'all. I do think we were an incredible, I mean, musical generation in terms of just exposure. You know, like a lot of us had this encyclopedic knowledge of music just because we were like the first MTV generation. Like when they actually played music, we're the first, you know, we grew up on our parents' Motown. We grew up on Yacht Rock on the radio. Yeah, like we have all this breadth of knowledge there. Um Tell me what being Gen X means to you in that context, because I was just living for like all of these references. Like this is my childhood right here. Like this is my whole childhood. I was so here for the whole thing. But um, you're giving a musical education. So tell me, what does being Gen X mean to you? I mean, it means uh, I think you articulated it so beautifully. It means well, so you. much. I think we have <laughs> such a rich sort of musical hair, hair. Uh, just stuff all around us. But and then you add to that that we created hip hop. That's right. So then it's like, I just I'm not here for any arguments. <laughs> I'm just not. I'm not here for any. There arguments. is no argument. <laughs> no. Like, and that's and that's how we created hip hop. Mm-hmm. Though all those mm-hmm. things that you mentioned, the yacht rock, the Motown, the disco, mm-hmm. everything that we were listening to mm. and coming up on. But I think for me, what Gen X means as as much as if not even more than just like the musical stuff or even the cultural stuff. I mean, because I had Thelma from Good Times, so I write about a lot. I write yeah. about Bernadette Stannis and Shine Bright. Yeah. I'm such an influence on so many of us. Um, Gen X girls, black girls in particular. But for me, the Gen X was for better and oftentimes for worse. We had a lot of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When I, I, I grew up in, I was born in Oakland. Um, I moved to, we moved to Los Angeles when I was about 10. And then I moved back to the Bay Area when I was 17 or 18. 
And then I moved to New York for decades until I recently moved back to California, to Los Angeles, right before the pandemic. I live in a neighborhood that I used to ride my bike through um, as a kid, my sister and I. And whenever I'm with anyone, especially someone younger than me, I call them my baby girlfriends. <laughs> my girlfriends in their, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Beautiful, brilliant uh, women to a one. Um, and they say, oh, you grew up around here? And I said, no, I didn't grow up around here. I said, I used to ride my bike through here. And they say, well, so you and like the family? And I say, no. <laughs> Me and my sister, and I was 11 and she was nine. And we would ride all the way to the beach. Okay, nine miles from where we lived. Wow. And back. And it would be like me and my sister, or it would be my sister and I and our little group of friends from the block. Um, I remember when I would go to Oakland for the summers with my great-grandparents and stay with them, they would give us $5. And I would go to the mall, or we would walk up to Mills College and walk around. Like, what were we doing? I know. I know. <laughs> I don't know how any of us survived it. I think about this often, <laughs> and we didn't have cell phones. Like, what were we doing? No cell phones. <laughs> no cell phones. Um, but listen, it made me so fearless, though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No fear about so many things. Like, the thing about being a journalist is if you're blessed, you go places, man. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, if you read Sean Bright, you know my childhood was tumultuous at the yeah. very least. Yeah. Uh, so I was always looking for, like, an escape route. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. someplace other than where I was. Uh-huh. And sometimes I wonder if that didn't ease me towards journalism, too, aside from the fact that I just love to write and still do. Yeah. But when hip-hop was new and people would say, where are you going? And I would say, well, I'm going to see Run DMC. <laughs> they would say, you will get killed up there. I would say, I'm going to see Gangstar. I'm going to see NWA. And they would say, well, who are you going with? And I'm like, that meme. I would say, I don't know. We're going to see. Like, who want to go? Like, I'm, but if don't nobody want to go, I'm going. And this was even before I was a working journalist. I would just go. I wasn't scared to go. Uh -huh. and because of that, man, I've been places. When uh -huh. you look at maturity as pen as I was many, you know, decades later, I'd never been to a gymnastics meet. <laughs> I'd never been to the Middle East. Wow. And I was blessed that ESPN said, hey, do you want to go to Doha? Do you want to go to Qatar and see Simone Biles? Uh, uh, yes, please. Worlds. <laughs> You know, I didn't hesitate. Of course. I said, what time does the plane take off? Let's go. And it's like, that comes from riding my bike to the beach. Uh -huh. I don't, I don't, I don't blink at it. And it's a blessing. I said, I'm lucky to have lived through it. Uh, but that wildness. Yeah. It stays in you. Well, we're going to take just a minute and then we'll be back with more Writing Black. 
Danielle, I'm, I, I'm enjoying this conversation so much. I knew I would because um, I see, I just see so much of myself in you, and I, and I love how you love black people, black music, black women. Just love us, and that is uh, always so fun to uh, engage with. You know, um, as much as like you know, listen. I think anybody who loves music or claims love music should engage with Shine Bright. But there's also obviously this other um, incredible excavation going here and all this research and detail, which is your story. And this idea of the hybrid memoir, I think, which I think, you know, we are seeing more of, you know, uh, which is very cool, um, is is fascinating. But you are the core here. You know, this this journey that this improbable journey in some ways that you took and then in other ways inevitable. Um, and you write that this was a, a story you had tried to write, that there were aspects of the story that you had tried to write many times. How, how did this version come about for you? How, how I guess I don't want to say how harrowing, but how, how was that process of, of getting to the core of something that was obviously deeply formative, but also deeply painful? Oh, it's deeply painful. Uh-huh. Uh, deeply formative. In ways that still show up today. Uh-huh. I don't have to be in the middle of writing about them for them to be showing up. Uh-huh. Um, very emotional. When I think about getting through the Gladys Knight chapter in particular, it's just the amount of thinking about deeply uh, painful uh, things for a long time, then writing it. Yeah. Then rewriting it. Then someone's reading it and asking you questions about it um, in the editing process and uh, the fact checking process. Because I have my own fact checker, shout out to Sabrina Ford, and um, who is a, is a hidden figure in so much of this. Sabrina's so serious. If I said it was a sunny day, in Los Angeles in December, she says, well, I'm about to go to the Farmer's Almanac and see if you're telling truths or lies. <laughs> um, but, you know, people are asking you about stuff that is in your nightmares. My other ways of avoiding home included staying late at my junior high school, pretending to anyone who asked that I needed tutoring. I was always on the run from the aggression of my mother's lawyer, but not a lawyer boyfriend, Alvin, and the toxic passivity of everyone else. Alvin was bitter, is what I was told. That's why he drank. My mother said that Alvin hated happiness in general, but specifically yours. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of trauma here, yeah, and a lot of shame that you, you know, what I love is the way that you um, make shame so relatable, this thing that all of us live with some version of. Um... Love is a strong word. That's probably the wrong the word, but I appreciated how you talked about shame and how you talked about trauma and how, and this idea that we were supposed to get over it, right? You know, the things that we live with that are still, you know, literally impacting our day-to-day lives. I just thought that that was such a, a nuanced and honest way of writing about that. I really appreciated I, that. No, I appreciate you noticing it. I do, because it's a... Uh... I tell people all the time, I appreciate the close attention to the text. I do. Um, it's it's uh, 
especially from another person that writes and creates and these things. I love it from anybody. I do. Any kind word you're going to give me about something I make, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for. But when you do hear it from somebody else who creates, who writes, it matters um, even, even more. So just, yeah, it was, it was painful. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that idea of having to write about the thing that hurts you the most, like that's it's, like, you know. And like then my whole not body trying to the point of not getting through it quickly. See, that was the, mm-hmm. that's what I had done previously. I would okay. say, yes, my child was very traumatic. And so anyway, next paragraph. Mm-hmm. So you had to sit in it though. See, I had to sit in it. And I had um, a great partner, my husband, um, mm-hmm. who writes himself. Yeah. And he's a great reader. Shout out to Elliot Kurt. Wilson. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Elliot <laughs> uh, Wilson Jr. as a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> So Elliot, and then, but, you know, and I have my sister. Yeah. Who is my witness in all things to my entire life as I am uh, in hers. And my sister was very, she's a, first of all, she's a teacher. She teaches like uh, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, stuff like that. And she's a dynamic and amazing teacher. And I told her that I was finally going to tell it. Mm. But I needed to know if she was cold with it because, you know, She's a teacher. And maybe she don't want her business in the street. Locked in the big linen closet for the crime of not having turned off its light. Chased around the big apartment on High Point with a belt. Chased with a hunting rifle. Beat and poked at with hangers. Me and Kel crouched deep in our clothes closet, hoping to be forgotten amid the stinking alcoholic fits. And she's the only one from whom I asked, or whom I've asked permission. And so I told her what I was going to do, and I, I just it was an emotional conversation. I'm, you know, I'm the emotional. My sister's just listening. Mm-hmm. And I said, "So I mean, what do you think? Like, am I doing this? Am I telling the details of our situation? Because my sister's." A teacher and there's stuff in there about my sister not learning to read until right way too late in life she was 10 or something like that and she basically said she should have been told it <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's cathartic for both of you but now I felt late. <laughs> so I had, to to I had to get to work. And you know, she read, she read stuff early. Uh-huh. It's been so wild between she and I on this because I remember stuff she doesn't. Right. She remembers stuff I I have either, you know, that I don't remember or don't remember well. I was places uh-huh. she wasn't. She uh-huh. was places I wasn't. Um, and so it's given us this wonderful opportunity because we, we, we've spent a lifetime talking around things and speaking in short speaking in shorthand has been uh-huh. our way of dealing with it and this has given us an opportunity to talk about it in longhand to to acknowledge that um, yes it was awful but here we are I love that here you are um yeah, this book is, I, again, I, I think anybody who loves music, anybody who, you know, 
loves themselves, loves girlhood, you know, should should engage with Shine Bright. Um, I ask this question of all of our guests, and I want to ask you before you go, because I know that you are a voracious reader um, as well as a prolific writer. Um, who do you read? Who do you read? Who's inspiring you lately? Who are you? Who are you drawn to? I mean, sometimes I read the same stuff all over again. Also a good answer. What are your favorites? <laughs> You're not going to get me away. It's, it's, it's so common to, I think, women like us and women in our profession. You, you're not going to get me away from their eyes for watching God. Fair. You're just Always. not going to do it. You're going to yeah. have to pry it from my cold little ashy hands. Like, <laughs> there's too many biographies that I've read so many times. I've read almost, I think I've read every biography um, about Billie Holiday. Mm-hmm. I, try, I think I've read biographies about Barbara Streisand any number of times. English major Sylvia Plath, the unabridged diaries I go back to all the time, just because she says exactly how she feels. Obviously, we don't come from the same spaces, but there's still things that you can yeah, find. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love that. I love that. Um, <laughs> I love that. And then I think, you know, I also like to read the work of people that are working in my same space like Dr. Daphne Brooks, like Donnie Walton. Love Donnie Walton. Um, She's a friend. Love her. Yeah, she's the best. (laughs) Um, So, man, I'm reading, obviously, Justin Tisley, who I worked with at ESPN and his great book about the notorious B.I.G. I Mm remember David Dennis and the great memoir he has about his father, David Dennis Sr., who was a civil rights hero, um, Just, just Isabel. Um, yes, yes. I'm sure. sorry. I, 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 for our readers, I mean, for our listeners, excuse me. Uh, if you want to know which Isabel she's referring to, Isabel Wilkerson is one of the yes. endorsers of this incredible book. So I don't think you, I, for me, I was like done when I saw that. I was like, <laughs> Paula Giddings. I mean, I was like, <laughs> but as they note, as is noted yes. here. This is, um, as as Oprah Daly says, delicious to read, and I really want people to read it. And I was so thrilled to have you on, and um, and I hope you'll come back with with what you're working on that's new, because absolutely it's such a pleasure. But for our writing black audience, this is the incredible Danielle Smith, y'all. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Now, when I tell you I could have sat and talked to Danielle all afternoon, all day, <laughs> I mean it. Um, but, you know, just just like she said, she had to stop on Shine Bright. We did, unfortunately, have to end our conversation. Uh, but she gave us some incredible recommendations, one of which is also one of my favorites this week, which is Donnie Walton's The Revival of the final revival, excuse me, of Opal and Nev. Um, this is a book I want to say that came out in 2019, um, maybe 2020. Um, and it's not nonfiction, uh, like Danielle's book. It is a work of fiction, but it is told from the perspective of a music journalist of which, uh, Donnie Walton used to be. It is, it is just as evocative, um, of the lives of black women musicians as Shine Bright is. It is, 
uh, wonderfully rendered, really gets into the dynamics of a lot of the industry and a lot of the politics that probably some of our biggest icons have faced over the years. And it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous story, an award-winning tale that um, deserves all the accolades it received, as does Shine Bright. So get into the final revival of Opal and Nav and get into Shine Bright, and we will see you next time on Riding Black. Thanks so much for joining us for this week's episode of Writing Black. As always, you can find us on the Grio app or wherever you find your podcasts. Witty, honest, entertaining. Introducing Dear Culture with Panama Jackson on the Grio Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Grio mobile app for all the black culture debates you don't want to miss. Also available wherever great podcasts are heard.